The smoke trout is a big seller. Max Burgess owns the Secret Smokehouse, a shop in East London that specialises in smoked fish. Then we've got the hot smoked salmon. We've got hot smoked mackerel. At first glance, it's not the most obvious place for an e-commerce story. And then we've obviously got a smoked salmon patty, mackerel patty. Before the pandemic, most of Max's revenue came from selling his products wholesale to restaurants and hotels. Yeah, the bread and butter was, was wholesale. That all changed a year ago. Max's wholesale business fell by 95% during the first month of restrictions. That threw a little curveball into the whole system, which was just men- mental. Um, Boris was on the, the telly saying, Use food delivery services where you can. That was the trigger where everybody was jumping online and um, buying from the website. In the UK, millions of us did just as Prime Minister Boris Johnson advised on the eve of the first lockdown. We shop more online and have been doing so ever since. The need to switch to online shopping has, arguably, provided consumers with more choice, but it's also caused scrutiny of the e-commerce market. Max is one of the many small business owners who has harnessed the power of e-commerce to survive the pandemic. And he decided not to sell through that big company, Amazon. The strategy was very much about building our brand as a secret smokehouse and come to our website and, and support us. The switch to online shopping by hundreds of millions more consumers during the pandemic has meant that a handful of giant tech companies now possess data on more people's likes and dislikes than at any point in history. As consumers, does this provide us with more choice and convenience? Or are we simply resigned to living in a world where a few big companies dominate the digital marketplace? You're listening to Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times, and your host for this series. This season, we're exploring how the pandemic is accelerating the transition to an online world and transforming so many aspects of our lives. In this episode, we're looking at the rapid growth of e-commerce over the past year. The profits of big tech companies have soared as billions of people have switched to working and shopping more online. This increased power of the big tech companies has made regulators, both in the US and Europe, question how the digital marketplace should operate in the future. The idea of a few big companies controlling the market is an uneasy one for many. Has the pandemic finally created the impetus to rein in the power of big tech? In Max's case, he chose to sell his goods on Shopify, Amazon's nearest competitor, because Shopify allowed him to sell through the Smokehouse's own website. The e-commerce company provides the infrastructure, or the plumbing, so to speak, behind the site, something that appealed to Max. The logistics of it is incredibly easy. The order comes in, you print that off, and you can print your shipping label. That then ties in with your courier. And then you just pick the order and pack it and it gets picked up and off it goes. And then they've also got a point of sale system as well. So it all ties in very nicely with your inventory. Though Shopify is valued at about $150 billion, it pales in comparison with Amazon's $1.5 trillion market value. And for many regulators in this new world of commerce, 
having one large company dominating the market poses a problem. The pandemic may have just exacerbated it. The FT's Tim Bradshaw has been writing about the growth of e-commerce during the crisis. As global tech correspondent, I cover a fair number of different things, but over the last year, e-commerce has been a particular focus just because it's been such a huge wave of growth during the pandemic. The biggest change in e-commerce, I think, is that everyone has been forced to use it, whether or not they were ordering things off Amazon every day, or it was the first time they'd ever placed a supermarket order online. That's led to huge, huge growth for companies like Amazon and Shopify, who talked about seeing years of acceleration in what they're expecting to see in the next five years all kind of happening at once. This tech boom has also resulted in some intense criticism of the four major tech companies, both in the United States and the European Union. The subcommittee will come to order. In July 2020, the US House of Representatives held a hearing with the chief executives of the four largest tech companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. In 2013, it was reported that you instructed Amazon employees to approach discussions with certain business partners, and I quote, the way a cheetah would pursue a sickly gazelle. Is the gazelle project still in place, and does Amazon pursue similar predatory campaigns in other parts of its business? I, I, I cannot uh, uh, comment on that because I don't remember it. The hearings focused on whether these tech companies are violating antitrust law. Basically, whether they are suppressing competition and wielding monopoly power in an illegal manner. All these companies, not just Amazon, came under fire for their business practices. Has Facebook ever threatened to clone the products of another company while also attempting to acquire that company? Congresswoman, not that I would... Not that I recall. Is Google steering advertising revenue to Google Search? Congressman, users come to Google Search. Uh, it is that traffic, and you know that's where uh, our source of revenue comes from. So we work hard to earn their trust. There's a lot of apps on the store, and a lot of people are making a very good living uh, from you know, it. And you've said that, forgive me for interrupting, but you've said that several times, but that to me might just underscore the monopoly nature of your business, that everybody's got to go through you. There's really no alternative. Antitrust regulators historically have very much focused on the issue of consumer harm. That's quite hard to make in a lot of these cases because the tech companies are providing many of their services for free. So there really has to be a different kind of standard applied to the, these companies. What, what do you think the regulators are going to focus on? Data, I think, is one of the biggest focus points because that's a way of defining market power and understanding uh, the value of that data in a way that's different to mere sort of price or consumer benefits. And I think there's also a question of how broadly or narrowly we define these different markets. Apple can argue that it's a small player in the mobile phone market, but if you're an app developer that's wanting to sell to iPhone customers, you can only sell that through Apple's app store. So what is the relevant market there? I think there's a there's becoming a real kind of shift in understanding that when some of these marketplaces are worth tens of billions of dollars by themselves, even if they're a, a subset of a, of a larger market, there's a willingness from this sort of newer approach of antitrust regulation to really just kind of say, look, this is one company with an extraordinary amount of power over this particular domain. It's often quite hard to find specific examples of that. But one that the uh, congressional hearings did focus on was the case of Quidzy. This is a, a case from, from 10 years ago 
where the company behind diapers.com, which sells sells nappies online, was basically uh, Amazon tried to buy them, Quincy held out. So Amazon started lowering prices of diapers, nappies on its own website until it became impossible for Quincy to compete. And in the end, they they had to sell out to Amazon. And, and here's Congresswoman Mary Scanlon questioning Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, about the company's 2010 acquisition of Quincy. It appears that in one month alone, Amazon was willing to bleed over $200 million in diaper profit losses. Um, Mr. Bezos, how much money was Amazon ultimately willing to lose on this campaign to undermine diapers.com? Uh, <clears throat> thank you for the question. I, I don't know the, answer, the direct answer to your question. This is going back in time, I think maybe 10 or 11 years or so. Uh, you could give me okay. maybe the dates on those documents. But what I can tell you is that the idea of using uh, diapers and products like that to attract new customers who are who have new families is a very traditional idea. Another big part of the critique for all of these tech companies is that they act as gatekeepers. They offer their own products and they decide how other companies' products are displayed and treated. And they have data on how all of those items are performing. It's as if you're opening up your trade secrets and your uh, cash register to your closest competitor. That's Sally Hubbard, an antitrust expert and the director of enforcement strategy at the Open Markets Institute in Washington, D.C. She's also the author of a book called Monopolies Suck. Sally says Amazon's status as a gatekeeper and the owner of all that data puts businesses selling their products on Amazon in a very tough spot. Because when they team up with the online uh, commerce platform like Amazon, they will have no bargaining power. They will have their uh, profits siphoned off with huge commissions. It's really ultimately a losing proposition for any company. At the same time, most companies do not have much of a choice of whether they're going to sell on Amazon or not. In Europe, the EU filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon for how they collect and use data. Here's what Marguerite Vestager, the bloc's competition commissioner, says about Amazon's use of data. As a small merchant, you know, you take a risk. You have to figure out what what products should I put out there? Uh, what should be the prices? You have to invest. You have to consider. You, you put your, your business at risk very, very often uh, when you do that. Amazon, on the contrary, they have all the data. And it's not just about what is sold. It is also how it's paid for, what is returned. Uh, what are people looking at next? And that, of course, enables them to to do their business with a completely uncomparable low level of risk compared to their competitors uh, on the same platform. In the US, Jeff Bezos argued that Amazon is big because customers love it. 80% of Americans have a favorable impression of Amazon overall. Who do Americans trust more than Amazon to do the right thing? Only their doctors and the military. Amazon might be even more popular on Wall Street, though. Shortly before the pandemic hit the US, Amazon became one of only a handful of companies ever to reach a $1 trillion valuation. But since then, its rocketing share price has added another half a trillion dollars in market capitalization. That's more than the entire stock market value of Walmart, which is around $400 billion. Nonetheless, Bezos still argues that Amazon makes up just a small part of a huge global market. The retail market we participate in is extraordinarily large and competitive. 
Amazon accounts for less than 1% of the $25 trillion global retail market and less than 4% of U.S. retail. There's room in retail for multiple winners. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Bezos says Amazon competes with lots of other companies, including big ones like Walmart and Target. But that depends on how you define the retail market. Here's Sally Hubbard again. Amazon likes to say it's not a monopoly because it has 4% of all retail, but that is not, does not hold up under antitrust analysis at all. Uh, there is no product market as broad as all retail. When you define that market, what you do is you look at the realm of substitutes. What are the companies that a consumer or a third-party seller could switch to if Amazon changed the prices or the fees or reduced quality? It's just not the case that all retail falls in that category. I mean, if Amazon raises the prices on razors, then the local hardware store is not a substitute. Um, so instead of focusing on these market definitions that the tech platforms like to present, the more helpful thing to look at is the direct evidence of monopoly power, which are the power to control prices or exclude competitors. Sally says that definition of monopoly power and other foundations of antitrust regulation in the US come from two laws, which were enacted well over a century ago. We have the Sherman Act, which was passed back in 1898. Which is all about preventing companies from agreeing not to compete and blocking monopolization of the market. That's when one company uses its muscle to exclude competition rather than competing on merit. The second is the Clayton Act, which was passed in 1914, and that prohibits mergers that might lessen competition or create a new monopoly. Now, what's happened in the United States is that these laws being quite broad have been interpreted by courts over the years. And in recent decades, they've really narrowed the laws so that uh, they're not quite working as they're intended. The government should work to create the conditions in which fair trade will flourish. We should be trying to foster the growth of two-way trade to open foreign markets, not close our own. That shift in how the courts interpreted antitrust law was ushered in during the presidency of Ronald Reagan and an ideology that would define his time in office, neoliberalism. Remember that being tough on trade and commerce, the lifeblood of the economy, will have the worst possible consequences for the consumer and the American worker. And the idea was that as you let companies get bigger through mergers, um, and through anti-competitive conduct that excludes competitors, that actually they become more efficient and that consumers will benefit because these companies can charge less as they become more efficient. Uh, it's been a, a you know, 30, 40 year experiment that has failed terribly. And we've seen that when these corporations get bigger and bigger, they do not pass on any savings to consumers. They have less competitors and therefore consumers end up paying actually higher prices. 
there was a burst of antitrust enforcement in the late 1990s. I understand that you're one of the co-founders of Microsoft, is that correct? Yes. When the US Department of Justice brought a case against Microsoft. Uh, What's your present title? Chairman and CEO. Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, answered questions from government lawyers during a three-day deposition in 1998. Sally was an intern at the time, learning about antitrust law. It was actually the last major antitrust case in the United States against a tech monopoly. You know, it's been more than 20 years. uh, And in the meantime, what's happened is we have the same problems that the USV Microsoft tried to solve have arisen again. And in fact, today's tech platforms are all really following in the footsteps of Microsoft. Sally says that at the time, Microsoft had a monopoly and 95% market share on operating systems for personal computers. Uh, to Windows being the most popular client operating system by a wide margin, Mr. Newbold was referring to the market share enjoyed by Windows. It told companies that made PCs that if they wanted the operating system, they'd need to pre-install Microsoft's Internet Explorer, not the web browsers it was competing with, like Netscape Navigator. Isn't it a fact that... Uh, Your executives at Microsoft back in April of 1995 were concerned uh, Netscape's web browser posed a threat to Microsoft's Windows platform. Can you answer that yes or no, sir? I don't know when people began to think of Netscape as a competitor to Windows. Uh, Sally says if the Department of Justice had not intervened, there probably would be no Google Chrome, which is now the world's most popular web browser. And ironically, uh, Google then did exactly the same thing with its Android operating system, telling the phone makers, uh, if you want our Android operating system, which, by the way, is the only real licensable, viable operating system for phones, then you need to pre-install all of our apps and not allow competitors to have a shot. Google is attracting regulatory attention too. The Department of Justice announced an antitrust case against Google over its dominance in search last October. But after that burst of activity with the Microsoft case, the US eased off on antitrust enforcement again, which Sally says has allowed for the tech companies to keep solidifying their monopolies. Is the the antitrust statute broad enough to regulate the tech industry? Yes, it is. And actually, I think that even under our current standards that have been made quite weak by the courts, the major tech platforms are all violating the antitrust laws under our current standards. Um, And what we've had is actually a problem where enforcers haven't had the political will to bring these cases. Sally says the dominance of the big four, Amazon, Google, Facebook and Apple, makes it nearly impossible to compete on the same playing field. What we have are four companies um, with their own particular domains. And if an entrepreneur wants to start a business that is uh, in any way challenging one of those domains, they basically just can't get funded. They're called kill zones. From what Sally Hubbard is saying there, it sounds like it might not be a matter of bad laws themselves, but rather of weak enforcement. Is that right, do you think? Yes, I I think that's definitely true. I mean, for a long time, there was a a relationship where politicians, particularly in America, were very excited about Silicon Valley and, and keen on this great American growth story. But that's seems to have really changed in the last couple of years, and particularly in the last year with the pandemic, which has demonstrated just how reliant we've all become on a very small number of very, very large tech companies. 
I heard one economist talk about Amazon, in effect on it, the marketplace is an incumbent insider trader because it is at the center of all these incredible data flows. It knows far more information about pricing uh, structure, who the customers are, uh, what the sensitivities are in pricing and so on, than anyone who actually um, tries to sell goods on that marketplace. Do you think that's a good comparison? Yes, I, I think it's a great comparison. I uh, and, and I think that the, the power that that gives to you know, not just Amazon, but also Apple, Facebook, Google is because there's so much data that they can see about what's going on in the marketplace. That's data that they've been able to use to inform their product development and acquisition activity. And why didn't Max at the Smokehouse in East London use Amazon? He says he thought about it, but he was worried that his products and his brand would just get lost. If you sell through Amazon, I just think that that's otherwise derogatory to your brand and what you're trying to achieve in your strategy. Unlike Amazon, Shopify stays in the background. If you look at Secret Smokehouse's website, it isn't obvious that they're even using the platform. Max gets to keep his brand in front of his customers and finds dealing with Shopify pretty straightforward. Communicate with them, you can email them, you can see all the statistics, analytics about the returning customers. Fundamentally, it all comes down to the economics, okay? So it's about your percentage margin and and what you're making and you want to build a brand. In the EU, Marguerite Vestager has been spearheading something called the Digital Services Act to create a more competitive digital marketplace. So the first leg will say, these are the things that you should do. These are the things that you cannot do. For instance, you cannot promote yourself if you're in competition with others uh, on your platform. What you should do could be that those who use your platform should have access to their own data. And the second leg of, uh, of the Digital Markets Act would allow us to look at the market conditions in market that has not tipped yet, where you do not yet have a gatekeeper for that market in order to make sure that that market is still open uh, and contestable. Vestager is cautious, however, about the idea of breaking up big tech. It obviously would, would take us to court for a very, very long time. And it's not a given uh, what would be the outcome of breaking up companies Uh, Let alone so far, I've not had a case where that would be the only remedy. Sally Hubbard says that breaking up Amazon is only part of the solution. It may still not be enough because of all the ways that Amazon can control its platform. This would take in-depth investigation to figure out what are all the levers that Amazon is pushing and pulling to distort competition. I think we also need a non-discrimination regime that's going to be requiring that all companies that have to deal with Amazon are treated the same um, and Amazon cannot self-preference or prioritize itself in any way. Tim, we're seeing quite a shift in mood in America at the moment with the Biden presidency. It looks as though both Tim Wu and Lena Khan are joining the administration and they are two of the most eloquent antitrust experts out there. Do you think we're going to see a renewed impetus from the administration itself to tackle the big tech companies? I think, to me, that's one of the strongest signs that Silicon Valley needs to worry. I mean, there was perhaps a sense that when Trump left office, that they might have an easier ride under Biden. But, I mean, Lena Khan and Tim Wu are very much at the forefront of drawing up the new rules of engagement around antitrust. And if they are now put in a position of real legislative power... I mean, that's that's when things really start to change. Silicon Valley isn't going to go down without a fight. They all believe that what they're doing 
in many ways is benefiting consumers. And if the last uh, year on the stock market is anything to show by, they've got a lot of support from Wall Street investors, which just gives them even more financial firepower to keep doing it. So it's not going to be an easy ride, even with a tougher team going after them in Washington. The growth of e-commerce is just one of the lasting legacies of this pandemic. Thinking back over the five episodes we've produced for this season, I'm inclined to take a long-term view of all this change in our online behaviour. One economist who takes a historical perspective is Carlotta Perez, who has identified five great technological revolutions over the past 250 years. The first was the Industrial Revolution itself. The second, steam engines and railways. The third, electricity. The fourth, oil, cars and mass manufacturing. And finally, the fifth revolution, the information technology revolution, which we're in the middle of right now. Perez points out that after all of these preceding technological upheavals, there has been a great institutional reawakening. Societies have figured out how to adapt to the latest technology, creating new rules for how economies and societies operate. And that's really where regulation comes in. In the past, governments have introduced laws to protect workers in factories or children in mills. And I think that's where we're heading at the moment, a new era of institution building. We've seen the disruption caused by technology, and now we're seeing politicians, lawmakers and civil society figuring out ways to humanize technology and reassure people that it's being used for societal benefit, not just for private gain. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. The reporter this week was Tim Bradshaw. The producer was Camille Peterson. Sound design and mixing was by Breen Turner. The editors and executive producers were Cheryl Brumley and Liam Nolan. Original music was composed by Metaphor Music. Thanks for listening to this reimagined season of Tectonic. We'll be back for another season in the summer, examining the promises and dangers of AI.